This week's episode made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com. Good morning, Memphis. I hope you are having a wonderful Tuesday morning right here in the 901 or wherever you happen to be listening to us from. If you just changed that dial and you were just now joining us, you're listening to Meanwhile in Memphis on WYXR Radio 91.7 FM. I am your semi-regular co-host, Anna Thompson, affectionately known as AT around these parts. And you will be thrilled to know that I am not flying solo today. I have some wonderful additions to our studio, and they are our amazing summer interns. So we have Shreya Ganesh and Sean Meng. Um, and they are our 2022 Bank of America student leaders right here in Memphis. So through the student leaders program, Bank of America annually connects more than 300 community-minded high school juniors and seniors from nearly 100 communities to employment, skills, development, and service. The students hail from many diverse backgrounds but are united by their drive and their commitment. Through paid internships with a local nonprofit, which, um, by the way, would be us, New Memphis, and in participation with the National Leadership Summit, these interns gain practical work and life experience. And New Memphis is the Bank of America partner for our region. So we are very, very excited to welcome our interns this summer. And this is the first time they are joining me in the studio. So I want to give them a big warm welcome. So will you all take a moment and introduce yourselves? Um, okay, my name is um, Shrey Ganesh, as she said before. Um, I'm a rising senior, and I go to White Station High School. Um, this internship, like, really caught my eye when I was applying or, like, looking at things to do over the summer because I always take, like, a really big, like, importance in my life and, like, definitely giving back to the community. Like, all the things I've done in my high school career already have been very community-oriented. So, like, an opportunity to work on such a larger scale since New Memphis is, like, way larger of a like nonprofit than I had ever heard of before um like that opportunity to be able to work with people and like work with so many different types of people um just really caught my eye and really made me want to participate in this internship yay well we're excited to have you here um hi hi everybody I'm Sean um I'm a recent graduate of White Station High School and I'll be attending the University of Chicago in the fall Woo! yeah um and I applied for this internship because I feel like I have um, a decent bit of experience in the community, but I think I need to learn more about how I can approach my own experiences to um, bring my individual skills to other people and um, how to learn from other people as well. So I think um, that's a big thing New Memphis does, uh, focusing on personal development. and. I think if I can um, explore myself while exploring Memphis and the community around me, I can um, have a very productive summer and uh, enjoyable experience. Yay! Well, we're so excited. Um, for those who may not know about what our organization does, so the organization behind Meanwhile in Memphis is New Memphis, a local leadership development nonprofit that is transforming Memphis through the power of connection. As part of that, we have a full menu of leadership development programs from college students all the way up to C-suite executives with everything in between, including our city's wonderful educators who are currently on hiatus enjoying their wonderful summer. Another way we do this is through our oh-so-fabulous community engagement events, and another way is through this radio show in partnership with WYXR. I'd encourage you to go over to newmemphis.org to learn more about what we do and how we do it and how we celebrate our city. So this morning, we are going to be showcasing a wonderful asset that Memphis has, the Benjamin L. Hooks Institute for Social Change at the University of Memphis. A little bit of history about this wonderful organization is that it was founded in um, 1996 by the late civil rights activist, Dr. Benjamin Hooks, in partnership with university officials. So the Benjamin L. Hooks Institute for Social Change is an interdisciplinary center at the University of Memphis. Um, so together, the Hooks Institute and the University of Memphis have a common goal to play a pivotal role in framing and solving community problems through the wisdom and vision of pioneers such as Benjamin Hooks. So we are very excited to showcase um, 
this institute today. I think it is something unique that our city has, and particularly with um, the University of Memphis. And as we will get into later, it's really important that we recognize the contributions of diverse individuals in our community and how we continue to use their insights to move the needle and continue um, activating on the work that they did during their lifetime. So we are very excited to welcome our guests today. First, we will have Daphne McFerrin, who is the executive director of the Benjamin L. Hooks Institute for Social Change at the University of Memphis. We also have Nathaniel Ball. In April 2021, Ball was named assistant director of media initiatives and program support, where he now works to continue to grow the Hooks Institute's initiatives with particular focus on media programs. Um, I'm really excited to get to know them a little bit better. And without further ado, let's get into our conversation today. Good morning, Daphne and Nathaniel. How are y'all? Fine. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. Good. Um, So can we get started by telling us a little bit about yourselves? So just a brief little, like, what brought you to Memphis if you're not native Memphians and how you found yourselves at the Hooks Institute? So my name is Daphne McFerrin. I am the executive director of the Benjamin L. Hooks Institute for Social Change at the University of Memphis. I grew up in Fayette County, Tennessee. But after graduating from high school, I went to Yale as an undergraduate and then Harvard Law School. After that, I practiced in the D.C. area for about 17 years. Um, And then I came back to the University of of Memphis um, because I was finishing up a documentary on the civil rights movement in Fayette County, Tennessee. And I came back as a visiting scholar. So after my time ended, I went back to Washington, but the university asked me to consider to consider coming back and directing the Hooks Institute, and that's how I ended up being its executive director. Wow. So how many years have you been with the Hooks Institute now? I am in my 15th year. Wow. 14 years and four, what is this, June? 14 years and six months. Congratulations. That's a wonderful, a wonderful tenure there. So Nathaniel? Um, Yes, my name is Nathaniel Ball. I was born in Memphis and raised in Memphis, Um, graduated White Station High School, Mm -hmm. and uh, two-time University of Memphis graduate. Um, <clears throat> I came to the Hooks Institute as a graduate assistant in 2013 uh, to help with uh, a documentary film, The Civil Rights Movement, A Cultural Revolution, which looks at uh, fashion, music, and culture of the 1960s and how it was influenced by the Civil Rights Movement, 1960s, Ooh. 1970s. Interesting. And uh, from there, I uh, ended up um, staying on after I graduated uh, to help uh, produce a documentary film, uh, Facing Down Storms, Memphis and the Making of Ida B. Wells, which was just uh, premiered in April. And um, I am now currently the assistant director of the Hooks Institute, and I help with uh, program uh, implementation and also uh, the media projects that we do, such as films and websites and whatnot. Okay, and us. And <laughs> um, so y'all both mentioned like documentaries. So can you tell a little bit about what the Benjamin L. Hooks Institute for Social Change at the University of Memphis, which is a very long name, but I love it. So what what is that for someone who may not have ever heard of it or didn't know that it existed? The Hooks Institute was started in 1996 by the late Dr. Benjamin L. Hooks and faculty in the political science department. Its mission has always been the preservation of civil rights history. Um, That included uh, preserving Dr. Hooks' papers. As many of your listeners know, he was a native Memphian, a civil rights activist, the first African-American commissioner at the Federal Communications Commission. Um, Also, he was on the board, I think the board chair of the National Civil Rights Museum. He donated his personal papers to the University of Memphis, which have been digitized, and it's the largest digitization effort in the history of the University of Memphis because there were so many documents associated with it uh, and audio tapes as well. So our documentaries are part of our mission of preservation of civil rights history. Our full mission is teaching, studying, promoting civil rights and social change, primarily focused on social justice movements of the past and contemporary movements. So media is, in this age, one of the um, easiest ways to 
educate and entertain audiences with historical factual information. And we use the resources at the faculty to make sure that we're historically accurate. Um, we use the resources of the community. Memphis is a community that has a very rich history of even today live civil rights activists um, who can share their experiences of the time. So I guess the Hooks Institute first introduction with documentaries was when I created Freedom's Frontline, Fayette County, Tennessee. I worked on the production team uh, of that film. And from there, Dr. Hooks, when I became executive director, he was alive. He wanted to film on his life. And we, um, working with Risa Geese and Tony Dancy, uh, created a film called Duty of the Hour, which is a film on the life of Benjamin Hooks. But it basically tells the story of Memphis. Dr. Hooks lived into his mid-80s, so the film spans approximately 100 years. And Memphis, from basically post-reconstruction through... Um, the election of Barack Obama. Uh, wow. Sort of, we don't talk about his election, but up to that period right. of time. So after that, um, I uh, wanted to create a film, as Nathan said, on a fun film on the influence of the civil rights movement on music, fashion, and culture. And specifically, what brought me to that was the death of Trayvon Martin and the wearing of the hoodie yeah. and how often in social justice movements uh, these sorts of... Um, clothing and styles are appropriated by the majority population. Everybody wears a hoodie now, including Zuckerberg on Facebook, but yet it's something that in Trevor Martin's case was used to uh, put an image by those who killed him of criminality. You know, yeah. So we have to look at how these visual images are used often to discriminate and then appropriate it. <laughs> yeah. So Nathan was a graduate student and he was hired permanently because he was doing outstanding work by the by the Hooks Institute and he and I made this 15-minute film uh, which is meant to examine those issues but also look at um, the fun part that actually you know many minority groups contribute so substantially to the um, cultural and musical especially African-Americans vibe of the nation you know, and we have to recognize that this is also transformative as well. So from there, we've done, if you go to our YouTube page. Our short films and interviews with civil rights uh, activists in the past and, and today, they're all available on our YouTube page, which is uh, youtube.com slash Ben L. Hooks Institute. And uh, yeah. Yeah, so you can see a lot of our, our work there. But the feature-length documentaries, like Duty of the Hour, was 57 minutes. Wow. That was on WKNO and KCET Los Angeles for two years. KCET Los Angeles is one of the largest, has the largest broadcast area, one of the largest broadcast areas in the country. Wow. So it was on there for two years. Um, we also received awards for Duty of the Hour, including one on Capitol Hill from the um, Congressional Black Caucus Veterans Brain Trust. Um, so that sort of got us started on documentaries, but I want to point out too, we do a lot of shorts, and shorts we consider it can be three or four minutes. Um, so after that, uh, after we finished Duty of the Hour, you know, I was always intrigued by Ida B. Wells, and I hope your viewers know who she is. <laughs> I would uh, hope so too. <laughs> if not, then they can do that research on their right, own. Right. That is much needed. Yes. <laughs> So we began this film seven years ago, and we just premiered it at the Halloran Center on April 19th, a red carpet premiere. Um, and Nathan will talk about the Halloran Center was a red carpet event where we wanted our supporters to come out, but we will have a public showing of it as well, and Nathan can talk about that. But uh, after, after the public showing here in Memphis, at some point we hope to have it soon on a digital streaming platform. Okay, so talk to me about the um, the red carpet appearance, uh, like the the big to do. <laughs> about the red carpet premiere. Yes. <clears throat> so uh, the uh, red carpet premiere was April nineteenth uh, this year, so it's twenty twenty two. We had it at the Halloran Center. Our um, um, MC was Rita Coburn, who is a documentarian. Um, and a producer who has done such works as yes. Marian Anderson, which is on PBS Masters. Wow. Yes. And, and other works with Common. Yes. He's a, uh, I think a rapper. I shouldn't say that. Common, a rapper. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was very much a relief. It was good to have the film made after after such a long time, and uh, we I'd say our attendance was what over two hundred people, maybe two fifty. That's um, wonderful. Yeah, and everyone had great things to say about it. Um, you know, well, everyone. Yeah, everyone who spoke to us. About it. No. <laughs> but even even afterwards, we had interviews, and, and they and they had really great great things to say about us. And uh, it was really great to just uh, have it out there for for the first time. And uh, subsequently, we are um, going to um, screen the film at Malco on Studio in the, at Studio on the Square on Malco, um, and that'll be on July twenty first. Ooh, just around the corner then. Yeah, yeah about a month away. Mm-hmm. On well, July 21st at 7 p.m., and then also we'll do it an, another week um, on July 28th at 7 p.m. And so those are both, uh, yeah, on a Thursday night, and you can get tickets at uh, memphis.edu forward slash facing down storms um, or go to our website, memphis.edu slash Ben Hooks, and uh, tickets for that are $10 a piece, so much more affordable than our uh, – our fundraiser <laughs> event so. and cheaper than a regular movie ticket these days i yeah. mean my goodness yes um, <laughs> i love studio on the square it's such a such a cute studio um so tell me about you said it, this film was like seven years in the making yes yes well one one of the reasons is that we are independent producers yes so we don't come with a full st- studio <laughs> of 100 people yes um, descending the, upon the, <laughs> the other thing is that you know, we were dealing with a, uh, a figure who's deceased in a period of time when there was no B-roll footage. B-roll footage is background footage. So yes. cameras, film cameras weren't, you know, she was born in 1862 and died in 1931. And black people weren't photographed, even if there were photographs in enough. We had about four or five pictures of her um, wow. that we had to make an entire 90-minute film on. So No no small feet. Right, no small yes. feet. So we had to bring in an animator. Uh, Tanya Smith uh, was wow. our animator. Um, we also uh, created B-roll footage, uh, and we also uh, hired a music composer. We also had interviews from experts on her life, historical experts. Um, and so from that, we were able to create a visually interesting interesting, entertaining, educational film, right? So when you're creating a film, at the end of the day, it has to be entertaining. I mean, that's the bottom line, even if you're dealing with historical facts. And the film deals with, you know, uh, Ida B. Wells' legacy is that she was started a paper called the Memphis Free Speech while she was here in Memphis in the late 18, uh, uh, in the 1890s, she was driven out of Memphis when uh, she protested the lynching of three African-American men who were lynched near Lamorne on college. Um, And she devoted a significant portion of her life to an anti-lynching crusade, which included getting um, Britain on her side to protest lynching and then coming to the United States and meeting with sympathetic groups all across the nation. So the film is if it were rated, it would probably be um, viewer discretion advised or R because yeah. there are lynching photos in the right. film. But it is not done gratuitously, but rather to show um, that the history of race in America is a complex one, and many of the issues that she dealt with in her lifetime are actually issues that we are dealing with today. That. Um, Justice is never a straight line, but it's a zigzag one, um, and that many of the gains of the past can revert because actually she complains that some of the gains made after the Civil War um, were lost. I mean, in fact, she filed a lawsuit to be able to sit on her train because she was thrown off because she was black and sitting in the white section of the train. Um, so you see that some of the issues she struggled with can reverberate and end up in your own time period, which is like now and which is happening now. And so the the film is, we end the film actually on the storming of the Capitol. Uh, and so we have footage of the storming of the Capitol because mm-hmm. she says America has to make a choice. You know, it's either going to descend into chaos, you know, because it's not adhering to its precepts of, of, of democracy, um, of fairness, 
and so our, our Christianity too. And she says the country has to make a choice. It's either adhere to the principles it espouses or devolve into chaos. And so wow. we end on the storming of the Capitol. So That's we powerful. show, yeah. So we show its relevance to today. Um, so this film was, and let me just, I have to say who worked on the film because it was just not me and Nathan. You know? <laughs> what do you gonna, mean? <laughs> so Fabian Matthews of Spotlight Productions, that's what he does for a living is make films. Mm-hmm. And so he joined our team, Tanya Smith, who I mentioned as the animator, and also Anthony Smith, who was a, the composer, Deborah uh, Thomas, Deborah Manny Thomas was our narrator for this version of the film. We also worked with the University of Memphis Department of Theater and Dance because we have reenactments. And the reenactments, our actors are dressed, our actress, who is Ida B. Wells, is dressed in period costumes. So for like the B-roll and everything like that. Okay, awesome. We we had to recreate Ida. Uh, (laughs) um, And Destiny Freeman is the voice of Ida. And um, Danica. Danica Norfleet Norfleet, uh, plays Ida. Right. The, yeah, like the you know visual of Ida. The visual of Ida, right. and so there are many people who help uh, who help who helped us bring this film to fruition. So another reason people should go see it at the Malco. That's in, wonderful. In, a, in July. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, more or less you know entirely produced <laughs> by Memphians about a Memphian. About a Memphian, yes. And uh, I do. I guess from a historical standpoint, it's important. This film is important too, as one of our uh, interviews says about I- interview interviewees says about Ida B. Wells is um, you know what Ida B. Wells is doing during uh, her time, which is you know protesting, creating um, economic boycotts, uh, really telling truth to power, protecting black men, um, are fighting for black men from violence uh, through lynching and uh, as Paula Giddings says one of our interviewees that this is really the beginning of the civil rights movement and everything you see here happens again in the 1960s and the same strategies are being used today so yeah that's actually something I wanted to touch on a little bit is why is the work of the Hooks Institute so impactful and necessary even today and you've hit on it in many many different ways but I mean well, if you had to boil it yeah. down, distill it to its, is that it's still happening? <laughs> it's it's still happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, it's important that, you know, if you think about it, um, and I say this, there, frankly, I'm unaware of another institute in a state of Tennessee named after a person of color. I do think Vanderbilt started a, the Divinity School started a social justice institute recently in the last two years. But it's important, one, that every state recognizes the contributions of its diverse citizens. Yes. Um, And so it's important that this institute be here to recognize the work of Benjamin Hooks. But it's not enough to preserve him in time. I mean, the world changes and he wouldn't have wanted that and didn't want that. So what the Institute does is look at contemporary social justice issues. So a, an example of that, of that is that we have two community engagement programs. Um, so one is the Hooks African-American Male Initiative. Unfortunately, African-American men, while doing much, much better, um, graduate among the lowest groups at the University of Memphis. Memphis simply cannot be successful unless African-American men are successful because the composition of the city is 68% African-American, and in the county, it's high 50%. Yes. Right? So you can't have that number of a population and not have African-Americans successful in the city. We must create African-Americans who are in plentiful numbers, part of the middle class and upper class, and, and who have wealth who can create jobs. And that is certainly not to meant to exclude other groups, but we are not a city <laughs> composed of... You right. know, it's directly correlated to success. Yeah, we're not sixty-eight percent of green people. No, <laughs> you know, so so we have to um, recognize that we have to create success here. Um, secondly, um, these young men have extraordinary potential. I mean, we're missing people who, by not 
getting them into the right professions. We were missing and losing out people who could solve medical issues, people who could be creative, people who could create businesses. So it's like throwing away diamonds in the rough. I mean, that's the way I see it. And that's just for any group of people that you don't invest in. Uh, you're throwing away diamonds in the rough. How many people do we lose who are geniuses, but they never have access to opportunities? The second program we have is called the Seat at the Table, and that's for any person who identifies as female at the University of Memphis, any person. And the point of that is to create leadership opportunities for women. We want women to have a seat at the table in government, in business, um, in the nonprofit sector. And so in this program... Uh, our women at the University of Memphis get to meet leaders of those various sectors and they get to create and form a group among themselves to encourage each other to excel. So with these two programs, our goal is to uplift women and also to uplift African-American men through HAMI. Now, both uh, programs are privately funded through our generous donors. And that those two programs are the most direct way we uh, connect to the professional community and grassroots um, leaders in communities. We also do policy papers. And the Hooks Institute policy papers use the research of faculty. Uh, I've written policy papers as well. And we tackle issues uh, that impact Memphis and the nation. So for example, our policy papers have dealt with voting and restrictions on voting. If you, you can see all of this on our website, our policy papers on our website. So if you are uh, someone who had a felony conviction, it is a nightmare to get your voting rights restored. Tennessee ranks, I think, 49th in the country in voter turnout. And we're working really hard to get to number 50. So, so, so there are only not, 50 yeah, states. Not, you know? not something we want to be. <laughs> That's something we want to be. Striving so, for, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we want to encourage people to whatever their political leanings to participate in the democratic process, because this is a process that people struggle every day to be included in. Uh, the right to vote and to right to have your voice heard is not something people can take lightly um, because, you know, when I was in elementary school, you were taught every person has, you know, the right to vote, and it's not true. Um, so, you know, we address that. We address housing issues. Uh, we address poverty. They're just a whole host of issues. Our policy papers have been cited as recently by the Commercial Appeal when they were addressing automation. They were looking at automation and FedEx, and they said, well, for a more in-depth discussion of the impact of automation, especially on African Americans, please see the Hooks Institute policy papers on automation. Right? I did see this. Yes, I wanted to ask about that, too. So yeah. I'll, I'll stick a pin in that. You okay. can keep going. <laughs> yeah. So I can, you know... Uh, Elena, Dr. Elena De La Vega and I wrote the paper on automation. And I was just intrigued because I saw on YouTube, and I forgot the name of the company, but they had this dog robot. Yeah. Boston Dynamics. Boston Dynamics, right? And this dog, you know, robot was like opening doors for the other robot. And now they have robots that jump and... You know, they they mimic body movement. They have the ease of a human body. I've even seen ones over the weekend that um, can mimic touch, like Uh that can feel. For like like you can like hold a hand, and someone with a prosthetic arm can feel a handhold or something like that. They're working with like. It's wild. Wow. So yes, all of that. It's wonderful technology, but I'm loving your point too about like. So what is the ripple effect of that wonderful technology? Right. It can. I mean. It's going to require more educated population because it's going to displace people who do uh, manual work. Not only manual work, automation is displacing some professional people, too, Mm -hmm. you know, because, uh, you know, you see every day on TV, you know, do your own will. Right now, I would not do my own will because I know there are a lot of issues with (laughs) wills. But, you know, the fact of the matter is some of even legal help is accessible and should be accessible to ordinary people by logging onto a website. And with respect to automation and, you know, uh, manufacturing, a robot never tires, right? Mm -hmm. And so I can see in the future, you know, robot doesn't have sick leave. It doesn't have annual leave. It doesn't talk back, right? You know, it doesn't, you know, so I can see robots being very attractive, you know, to to companies because you can work with them, you know, day and night and they never, you know, they don't complain. And I can see in the future where 
a robot, when it uh, gets out of order, another robot would go in and repair the robot, right? And so you even hear people who work in factories now, you know, you can see on um, some public television a person saying, you know, 25 years ago when I was here, this factory was filled with people. And they said now it is there are four people on the whole floor and all the work is being done by robots. So the, the question is, what impact does it have for the nation? And some of the turmoil I think we see in the nation is because we're in the midst of a revolution in terms of work. People don't see it that way. But, you know, I think it's a political, social and work revolution going on because a lot of jobs are going to be displaced um, by automation. And we have to address now policymakers, but whether we can do it or not is another question for another you know, <laughs> podcast. But sort of the, imp, you know, how are we going to handle this uh, transformation of work? Because jobs, the jobs that we see today won't be here 10 years from now. So what happens to those people? It's interesting, too, that you said it's a workforce revolution because we've had other guests on here, like from Peer Power and different things like that, to talk about how even just in the last couple of years and as we usher in a new generation into the workforce, like the expectations of what everything is. Like we were talking to um, Daryl Covins the other day and we were joking because we were like, you can't hate them because you ain't them. Like <laughs> they they don't like uh, this new generation. And uh, we'll have our lovely interns speak to this, I guess, if you want. But like. They were like, no, we want this. We want hybrid. We want extra, you know, this. I'm not going to. When I was coming up, I took an unpaid internship. And actually, I think I paid for my internship because I had to have class credit. Um, So I paid for school to be, you know. And so in a lot of ways, there's that one camp that's like, you have to do what we did. You know, you got to earn your dues. You got to do all this other stuff. And then the other camp was like, well, just because they asked for something better doesn't mean you can't like be angry with them because they didn't want to so it's this interesting push pull of like old school new school like with everything else that's kind of being put in a pressure cooker over the past few years with everything else well yeah i think that's true but i like to be a little bit more nuanced we have people in the community who are the age of your interns who have no access to internships or employment right and they're left on the margins and those are the the people that are forgotten and often end up trouble because in in trouble are underutilized because they're idle, right? And so the system as we know it does not address their needs or reach out to them, right? So that's one group. Yeah, I know. I really agree with that because, as she just said, like the like pros of getting internships and stuff. Like we have like hybrid and like we're getting paid. But, like, a huge thing is, like, the expectation also goes up. Like, a lot of, like, entry-level jobs expect you to have, like, all these internships and stuff and, like, not, like, let you just, like, have experiences of just, like, going to school. Like, I feel like a few years back or, like, lots of years back, (laughs) um, like, just going to college was, like, the experience to have. Like, oh, like, this already qualified you for, like, all these things. But, like, as, like, the workforce, like, progresses, now it's, like, you have to have gone to college. You have to have had, like every internship you had to have like a job because otherwise you're not like a well-rounded student so like definitely you can tell like people who don't have access to all these opportunities they definitely get left behind like even me having access to this internship like I felt like I needed this so bad because otherwise I wouldn't be able to get to like the same colleges or like the same like job opportunities as other students my age who've been doing things since like since they were like 12 and 13. Yeah so I would say there uh, so I would say there's your group and I would probably be in your group when I was your age, right? Because I was striving to go to the, you know, I knew I wanted to go to Yale when I was seven, seventh grade. Oh, I mean, wow. It's like, don't ask me how nobody at the time, nobody I knew had gone to Yale at the time. I just knew it. I think I was born in the Yale thing in my head with the Y. You know? So, so um, and I wanted to do all those things to get there. But I do think there's a group that, um, so we have tiers, right, Mm -hmm. of access. So the lower tier is students who don't know how to even begin the college process, don't know how or don't know anyone who's ever worked in this environment, a nonprofit Mm -hmm. or corporate environment. And then we have sort of those who are in college who need a little bit more guidance. And then we have the higher level tier of students who have high level advising from people in school or their parents about um, 
career opportunities. And the more selective you are in the college you want to go to and the career you want to choose, the more you need those, those kinds of opportunities. So I see among the higher tier some of the issues that you've addressed. Like, well, you know, I want to work from home, right? (laughs) You know, or, you know, I want to work from 10 to 3. You know, it's like, um, and so, and I think part of that is, and this is my own sort of take on it, is it's the absence of hardship today in American society. If this were World War II, you know, when people had to sacrifice so much, mm. you know, it would be we're kind of a reflection of our times that we're living in, you know, uh, this Gen X and Z have been have lived in the most prosperous time in the nation's history. And I say it's the absence of real hardship, not that I'm wishing it on anyone, <laughs> but when real hardship happens, some of these things go like if a country's at war are you would think the uh, pandemic would have created some sense of unity among the country, but it didn't, you know, I don't, you know, for a whole host of reasons. Um, So I see, I don't know how this is going to work out, but Elon Musk, whom I'm frankly not a fan of, you know, but, (laughs) but in any event, you know, he, and I think, you know, I think his position deserves with respect to his employees. He was like, you either come back to work or you quit. You know, he says, if you don't come back to work, I consider this your resignation. He says, because we cannot be creative with everybody working remotely. You know, we cannot be on the cutting edge. I don't think that's an unreasonable view. Um, and so, but it's not the only view. I know other mm. people who are working remotely. I know a lot of people in federal employment who are working remotely, and it works just fine. So I think the country over the next months and years are going to have to sort through this new working dynamic, right? I don't know what the end result will be, but I think both sides have merit. But in any event, at the Hooks Institute, we have to be on site because the university requires it. (laughs) Yes. But that aside, I do think there is something to be said for, like you said, um, the secret sauce of being in a room together and the brainstorming and the natural camaraderie that can come that just, it just isn't the same. Yeah. It just isn't. And I, I... I say that with a great salt because I do love a lovely hybrid <laughs> workforce that we have here going on at New Memphis. But um, there is, there's just something palpable about the energy when you're all in the same room and you can bounce ideas off of each other for that progress. Okay, so something else I wanted to talk about, Nathaniel, you sure. also um, have written a few things uh, that yes. I noticed <laughs> in the commercial appeal, okay. particularly, and something that is really, um, no pun intended, because it's not actually a very light topic, but the that is critical currently is critical race theory. Okay. <laughs> so you don't have to talk in depth about it, but I just thought right. a little bit about how the Hooks Institute is making sure that that stuff comes to light. Well, I think it's first... Well, so the whole battle really is the uh, what prohibited concepts in education, I guess, that and instruction, ten- and instruction right. that, that the Tennessee government passed. And I think it's important to remember that critical race theory, which is a, you know, a high level judici- ugh, ju- um, law school level course, our, our thought process looking at how, you know, as a society, through our laws, through our you know, education, through through everything, uh um, how, it, like racism is is affects all of these decisions we're making, policy and right. uh, whether or not you're talking about redlining for why after World War II African Americans couldn't, you know, uh, get access to these loans that that uh, were needed for housing for housing yeah, yeah. that uh, you know the white G, you know the white veterans even GI bills and, and and getting education getting all these other things that was not accessible even to African American veterans at the you time prior to World War II prior to World War II oh yeah and these bills even after yeah. in housing and education especially when the government is helping you with it is is you know how we build generational wealth right and so yeah and that's a long story and there's a lot more to it so um thing I like I will, about what you've even already said is like the correlation between like the pressures and the limitations right that everything is putting on every area of life and that that is what is necessary to keep combating and yeah. I and I with the I do my article looked at I think somebody had argued that we're well, we're protecting children from feeling bad right uh, they don't want to feel bad and, and have teachers convinced them that that young children are 
uh, responsible for slavery, right? Okay, well, that's not happening, first of all. They, they can't come up with any evidence, whatever. But I, my article, I got upset because, um, and I remember talking to Daphne, I was like, this, this is making me upset. <laughs> and so I wrote, you know, about yeah. it, looking at how this does not, like, sure, you're protecting, like, white children, at the expense of African American children who are dealing with racism every day, they're whether it, it's not, you know, they're dealing with, uh, you, you know, racism every day through through where they're where they're living, how they're educated, the, the way that the schools are are funded in this community. Uh, African American schools are, you know, I, I think are not not as well funded as as a lot of white schools in this, or you know traditionally white schools in this community and um so yeah that was kind of my argument is like you're not you're not protecting all children by not teaching racism in the school because african-american kids are experiencing racism whether you teach it or not whether or not you teach it or not (laughs) all you're doing is protecting these white children from uh actually learning about racism and maybe growing and making the world you know a better place in the future like you said the diamonds in the rough everybody everybody needs all the information and all the access to be able to reach their full potential so i'll be more direct about critical race theory okay (laughs) so first of all critical race theory is not taught anywhere k through 12. and i've taught at the university level and i can tell you i taught a freshman on a course the framework to uh, discuss an issue in the context of the Constitution precedent, meaning prior case law, and institutional conduct, federal agency, Congress, and presidential conduct. I'm not aware of any student <laughs> at the undergraduate level that I've seen, and there is one I'm sure out there that's exceptional, who could f- effectively use that framework to discuss the issue of race. And I also want to be clear, critical race theory is called critical race theory, but also has been used to discuss other issues, including um, issues, issues pertaining to women, gender issues, and for other groups. It is not race-specific in terms of a framework. Um, but most importantly, the law passed by Tennessee applies through K through 12, but nobody's teaching it K through 12. Mm-hmm. You know, So it was a political statement. You know. Um, but it also is meant to intimidate teachers uh, mm-hmm. who are teaching and to be fearful about what they're teaching and what they can bring in. Because there have been uh, instructors who've lost their jobs because they brought in uh, children's books or additional books um, that were not part of the curriculum. In fact, there was a GoFundMe page, and the guy read at an assembly a book. And it was about, <laughs> I don't know the exact title of the book, but it was like, my butt has a crack. It was a children's book, right? And he, <laughs> he lost his job. And then he, it's just in Mississippi, and he had a GoFundMe page, and he's appealing that. So uh, the uh, American Association of Libraries are saying they're very concerned about the number of books being banned. America mm-hmm. doesn't historically ban books. Putin bans books. <laughs> right. <laughs> so when we're doing what Valdemar Putin is doing, I think we need to be concerned, right? <laughs> Correct. So, so the fact is, this is a nation that has grown and prospered through the examination of issues and deciding what issues will apply to the country and discarding those that won't, but never through the banning of discussion of issues. Right. And so this is going down a trail that is extremely worrisome. I'd also like to point out is that the first institution that I can clearly say engage in what critical race theory does in terms of that discussion was the Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education. Mm -hmm. They didn't call it critical race theory because that wasn't a term used then. But the Supreme Court looked at um, the impact of segregated schools on African-American children. They brought in Dr. Kenneth Clark, who went through the dolls and whether or not did the black child choose the white doll or the mm-hmm. black doll? They invariably choose, chose the white doll because they associated white dolls with privilege and access. And the Supreme Court, looking at all these institutional factors, came to the conclusion that there was no place for separate but equal, that that was contrary to the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution and struck down um, this separate but equal sort of doctrine, which struck down Plessy versus Ferguson, which first held that there could be separate but equal accommodations in transportation. So if you outlawed the thinking of critical race theory, essentially you couldn't teach law school. 
because law school, you know, every course, maybe with the exception of taxation, you know, uh, even property deals with some institutional factor. It's not called critical race theory when people ordinarily taught it. Yes. You know, critical race theory developed under Dr. Uh, I'm sorry, he's an attorney, Derek Bell. Uh, who was a Harvard Law School professor to look at race primarily, but that um, that way of looking institutionally at the impact of institutions, as I discussed them, laws, government, culture, has been done for decades by the court. Um, and so, if we're really going to be honest about this, you know, these laws are intended to prohibit sort of teachings on race uh, and teachings on the impact of race through generations because you can't outlaw this thinking because you can't get through law school and you can't argue your case. I've argued cases before courts, you know, and I have to articulate on behalf of the Department of Justice and I've had to articulate, you know, it wasn't critical race theory because it may not have had anything to do with race, but I had to look at sort of the the whole framework to ask the court to reach whatever position I was arguing. Right. So the entire picture. The, the entire picture. So this is why it's deeply troubling to me is that it's disingenuous. Uh, and it's um, using the political, you know, it strikes a chord with people who think there's something there. And if you ask people on the street who oppose critical race theory what it is, they can't tell you. So, so it's like, you know, so it's it's anyway. And I have no and problem saying it, you know, but at the Hooks Institute, we teach actual history. A little bit more, I guess, even building on that, too, is, is Tennessee students when they're not, you know, really education and history education in general is is well, at least one of the benefits and in, in, in what it should be teaching is, is critical thinking. Right. And how to look at all of the facts that are presented in front of you. And you know, make a uh, you know a concise argument about you know what happened in the past and how it affects today, or or whatever, uh, in general. And our Tennessee students, because you know, if you look around the state and around the country, what's happening is people are banning or working to ban books. Like I know there's a children's book about ruby bridges, right? And using this law to do to do that. Um, and so our students aren't learning these things. They're not actually able. They're not going to be able to actually th- think through and have the facts and learn how to think through the facts of how, you know, the United States as a country is and the ideals that we live up to, and how have we gotten up to those ideals or not gotten up to those ideals? And if you get rid of that, first of all, we're not going to be students aren't going to be competitive in, in college no. throughout, throughout well, right. the country. Because critical thinking is required of, I yeah. mean, frankly, daily life. Like, at this, forget, like, higher education. Right. But, like, if you can't look at all the information presented in front of you, even if you're at the grocery store, mm-hmm. and, like, make an educated decision about what is best for X, Y, or Z, then we're all doomed. Right. <laughs> right. And, and then so, you have a non-thinking populace, right? Yeah. Or whatever. So when we were talking with your interns about opportunities in college and, and things like that, some students are going to be left behind when they go to the more rigorous universities um, because they simply will not have been taught in public school about some of these issues. And the second thing I'd, li- I'd like to point out, two things. I was in Germany in, tw- in the winter. Uh, it was Ooh. Black History Month, I know, in 2013 <laughs> in Berlin. I was shocked at how much they knew about American history and African-American history. Totally shocked. They were were having events. They were putting out press releases. I mean, they speak better English than I do, right, you know? And I'm like, here is the countries across the world are teaching their citizens how to make their countries the best, how to solve problems. And instead of, we cannot be a country that retreats from our problems if we're going to remain competitive on the world stage. And secondly, another important point, which I think is the most important one, the majority of Americans, and this is true from every poll, believes that the teaching of race and the history of race and uh, pertaining to African Americans and other ethnic groups should be taught in schools. The majority of Americans believe that. So, and you can go to Google it, you will see. So these laws that are passed are inconsistent with the views right. of the majority of Americans. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so switching gears a little bit. (laughs) Um, So recently I saw, um, I believe in March of this year, that Pinnacle Financial Partners announced a $15,000 donation to the Hooks Institute um, for the expansion of your services in Whitehaven and the creation of the Pinnacle Economic Empowerment Resource Center. Well, Okay, so two things. One, they're, they're 15000 and thank you, Pinnacle. The $15,000 <laughs> donation was used to for a naming opportunity because the Hooks Institute is moving its space. Oh, We've okay. outgrown our current space, and we'll be moving to one of the premier real estate places on campus where we have a 360 view of the city. Ooh. Wilder Tower. Yeah, Wilder Tower. And we are naming... Um, one a space in the facility after the late Herman Strickland, who was a banker at Pinnacle. Yes. And so this renovated space will allow uh, community activities. Uh, we will have an editing room. We will have space for our students. We will have enough space for the staff. Right now we're fairly cramped. Um, and so at the same time, Pinnacle also announced and their move into um, – Whitehaven, and so it was a joint announcement of expanding their banking services to under-resourced communities, but also support of the renovated space at the Hooks Institute. They were they're related in the sense that we both are focused on under-resourced communities. Okay, perfect, awesome. So, can y'all tell me a little bit about some projects other than the film screening that is coming up in a month that? Memphians can get involved with? How can um, just the average Memphian be involved in the work of the Hooks Institute? So we're in the process of now planning our fiscal year, which ends in 2023, June 30th. Okay. So so we will continue with the Hamey and uh, the Hooks African American Male Initiative and a Seat at the Table programs. There are opportunities for uh, professionals to mentor our students. If they'd like to do so, they should, should contact the Hooks Institute at bhi at memphis.edu. Again, the email address is bhi at memphis.edu, or they can call at 901-678-3974. Also, again, these programs are privately funded. And Hamey, for example, is a program that requires about $100,000 in resources every year. So one of the ways your listeners can help is to contribute to the Hooks Institute. Absolutely. We disproportionately for direct funding comes from donated and grant dollars. So every year, you know, I say my phrase is we kill what we eat. (laughs) Yeah. So I encourage your uh, listeners to, if they even if they want to personally become involved, to also consider financially supporting us because to uplift the Institute means means uplifting Memphis. Absolutely. And so they can go to our website at www.memphis.edu forward slash Ben Hooks. Yeah. Also, if they want to go to a a direct donation page for the Hooks. Well, it's it's memphis.edu forward slash Ben Hooks forward slash donate, and it'll take you directly to our donation page and if you can't remember any of that just put in hooks institute (laughs) and then the the home page will come up and you look at the left navigation bar and it says make a gift make a gift yes make a gift gift. listener dear listener um that's wonderful we also will announce um public events that we're not sure at this point whether they will be in person or in person or online because Mm -hmm. of covid we have to play that by ear yeah but last year, we did uh, lots of streaming events, which people could go to our Facebook page and look at the event there. You can also ask questions from the uh, comment page on Facebook. Mm-hmm. So this gives me an opportunity to encourage people to check out our website, check us out on Facebook. Um, you could there again put in Benjamin L., Benjamin L. Hooks Institute or Hooks Institute, and it will pull us up. We also have all the you know social media stuff on Instagram. Um, Twitter, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have all that. And then if you can't find any of that, again, you can email us at <laughs> bhi at memphis.edu. But I think the most, what I'd like to see come out of the podcast is more awareness of mm-hmm. the Hooks Institute, our name and what we do. Awesome. We had, um, 
Matthew Bello on a little, a few, oh, yes. a few, yeah, a few, yeah, yeah, a few weeks ago the with Daryl, yeah, Hamey, former Hamey, yeah. yeah. So he was singing the praises as oh, well. Wonderful, Good for Matthew. So, yeah, and he's doing great. He I'm, is. I'm proud of him. And he's we have, wonderful. We have great graduates that have gone through. Oh, great graduates! Uh, the Hamey program, and they are all going to do uh, like amazing things. So. Again, uh, it's just like you said, like having it in person, like talking to him like this, like you can see it in his eyes. I was like, scary. it's it's really <laughs> exciting to me to see how passionate he is about just making change in this city. And I was like, gosh, I can't wait. I was like, one of these days, and like give it a decade or so, I'm gonna be like, <laughs> he's gonna I, go far. I, I, I talked, I talked with you. When. I don't want to put pressure on. I know, him, but no, he'll go far. No, no pressure, Matthew. <laughs> but but um, we've had other students. I mean, we our graduate students are every racial and ethnic group you know and they have gone on we have lawyers from their group we have people who are on tenure track at universities Mm -hmm. wow right so when you know we tell people when you leave the hooks institute you leave ready to do something i mean because we have had just an incredible group of graduate students who have who are making their mark on the world now and undergraduates very proud of them yay um, so a couple last questions. Um, what is your hope for the impact of the Hooks Institute on Memphis, the long-term impact? Well, as I've uh, articulated throughout this interview, I would like to see the work of the Institute expand. I mean, that should be the goal. We um, are doing as much as we can with a small staff, but the Hamey program, for example, has 50, we, we cap it out at 50 because it's intensive coaching and mentoring. What would the world look like if we had 100 young men in the program? We don't have the funding to have a program with 100 African-American men in the program. But there are clearly 100 men on campus and in the community who could benefit from it. Right. A seat at the table right now has 20 students in it. We probably have the capacity for 30 at the most. But what would the city look like if we had 30, 100, I'm sorry, 100 women in a seat at the table? What would the city look like if Hooks Institute could join with local production companies and bring filmmakers to the city? The city is seeking, and we we have worked with the Memphis Film Commission, but the city is working to become um, a central location for filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So why can't we tie our work into civil rights history and lives of Memphians into the national cinematic approach to filmmaking. So what would the city look like if we had more researchers who could, if we can solve whatever's going on in Memphis, we could solve, I think, it could be extrapolated to other cities and solve, help solve problems there. So my vision of the Hooks Institute is to increase our program capacity through grant and donor support. And the only way we can do that, obviously, is for more outreach to foundations, which we have to do, but also increase the number of people who support us. And hopefully they can have, you have to have a vision. You know, you can't lead an institution like this based on where you are now, but rather, what would you like to see in the future? So we hope your listeners are visionaries as well. Absolutely. And will see this as an opportunity to share a shared vision with us of where the Institute will be in the future. Awesome. Um, and then something my, uh, my co-host who is not here with me today, uh, Christy Mullen loves to end every, uh, episode on is what does being a Memphian mean to each of you? Hmm. I know. You want to go first? I know. I need to think. (laughs) I know. Uh, what does being a Memphian mean to me? I mean, I guess, you know, I love I love this city. I've uh, grown up here. Uh, you know, um, the history is 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 impactful and um, interesting, and there's so much here that just hasn't been told. Um, of course, you know, even beyond that, there's the music which I love. So, what uh, you know, I guess there's a <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot here. Yes, um, I like the city's uh i I like the atmosphere of the city right and i think the uh you know the grizzlies kind of did it a few years ago with the grit and grind type uh uh which i'm sure plenty of people have said but i do think that you know being a memphian is is 
you know, you want to be here, really. Or a lot of a lot of ways. There's plenty of places to live, and if you're here, then you're 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 living in Memphis. You're you're you know uh, working hard to stay in Memphis, and and I also think that Memphis has a lot of potential in the future to grow. And if we reach a lot of these other uh, underserved communities to help them to grow as well. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. I think rambled, it does. The atmosphere. But, yeah. The atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I love it. Daphne? Yeah. I've lived in a lot of cities. Um, and what I like about Memphis is, uh, one, I think it's a kind city in, you know, in everyday life. I mean, people are eager to help. They're gracious. Um, I also think that Memphis, in ways that it does not give itself credit for, has worked through some issues in terms of at least addressing publicly issues of race and class in ways that I have not seen in other cities. Um, I have not seen the candor of, you know, issues discussing class and race. Some of these issues clearly have not been solved, but I think the discussions here among different groups, both black, whites, and other groups, is something I have not seen in, in other cities. I think the city should be very proud of the progress. I've seen a lot of progress in the last 14 years and six months in the quality of life of the city yes. and efforts to um, revise and um, re- revitalize portions of the city. Um, I also like the commitment of city leaders, even though it's a struggle and it's a painful struggle to often watch <laughs> about, you know, sort of, you know, their focus on improving the schools. Um, And I think these are really tough discussions that are going to take some time to solve, but at least they're happening. I think Memphis is a a place that one could live if you have some resources fairly well. I think the challenge for Memphis is to uplift those who are at the bottom, to find ways to make sure that some of these communities I drive through are – I can look at the people as I drive through – clearly malnourished and clearly living below the poverty line. We need to address that, you know, but I think this is a city from what I can see where if there is the will, um, there are the resources to tackle it. And I think that Memphis has the potential Mm -hmm. to be one of the best cities in the nation. It's going to take some work and some consensus um, and some willingness of those who are on the margins who have the wealth and the power to come to the center and make it happen. But I think it can be one of the best cities in America. And I see the potential. I love that. Okay. Awesome. Well, we, um, we've loved having y'all in the studio today and I hope that our listeners have learned more than a little bit more about what the Hooks Institute does. And with that, we will let you go. Thank you. Thank you for having us. What a fantastic show. I feel like we always say that at the end of every episode, but I felt like this one was particularly interesting to me because I don't know a lot about what the Hooks Institute did previously, so it makes me more excited to know that, one, this organization exists, and then all the exciting things they do, and I'm really excited. I really want to go buy a ticket after we leave the studio today. I want to go buy a ticket to make sure I get to the screening at Studio on the Square, which is really fun. So what did y'all think about your first time being in the studio and kind of getting... Uh, to learn a little bit more about the Hooks Institute. Uh, well, I just thought uh, Benjamin L. Hooks was like the name of the library. Um, okay, the yeah, library. yeah. But um, I, yeah, I learned a lot through the um, the podcast, and I think that um, we had two amazing guests that have a lot of great experiences, and I hope I'll be able to talk to them again in the future. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely crazy because I also basically only knew Benjamin L. Hooks from the library name. Um, and it was really like interesting to listen to them because I definitely wasn't aware of this program before and it's really amazing to see like how educated people are and like the changes that they're making actively and um, as one of our guests had said like Memphis goes unrecognized for so many things like a lot of the accomplishments that happen here like definitely don't get recognized as much as they should be and listening to them speak and talk about all the work that they've done really like helped me even learn about it and it really made me even like more proud to be from Memphis I'm like wow we're like creating all this change and like having all these accomplishments and all these like recognizable achievements um to like learn from and to like even spread even more to like educate people not even just from Memphis yeah I love that um something interesting that she talked about to me was like talking about how 
at least we're having the conversations, even if we don't have all the answers, which I think is something really important and something that New Memphis really tries to do like we did last week with our um, Celebrate What's Right, the great debate, talking about youth poverty. So I, again, with Daphne just talking about how she can just drive through our community and see issues, it is comforting to know that there are a handful, if not more, of nonprofits and individual citizens and private sector and community um, that are working to solve these. And we like to call them opportunities around these parts, not challenges. They are just opportunities for us to be even better. And so I always get really excited, like you said, to know about more people doing other things. I think we all have our own strengths and we're using them and we're not afraid to roll up our sleeves, which is what Nathaniel said about that grit and grind, which is what I always like to refer that to. So a little bit um, of end of show announcements to leave you before we go on our way. New Memphis Summer Experience is already well underway. And in fact, we have another event this Thursday on June 30th. So uh, I encourage all young professionals, college students, and emerging leaders, any 20-somethings, to come on out and and join in on the fun, uh, the free fun of summer experience. You can head over to newmemphis.org slash events to learn more about um, everything that's going on. I know that most educators are relaxing and enjoying their time off, but there are only a few short days left to nominate or apply for our 2022 Educator of Excellence Award. Um, A few special things to note is that we have opened up this application to include school support staff. The award comes with amazing accolades, including a $1,500 prize, so cash money. And then applicants and nominators are no longer required, but are always welcome to be part of the New Memphis alumni family. The deadline to apply is June 30th, 2022. So again, just a few short days away. But we are very, very excited to have our 2022 educators of excellence unveiled and special thanks to the Cruz Foundation for their support in this endeavor and for making this award possible. And again, um, as a local nonprofit, New Memphis programs, events, initiatives, and yes, even this Meanwhile in Memphis podcast are powered by the donations of the community. We implore you to please consider donating to um, the things around town that you love, enjoy, and participate in, and most importantly, the things that you want to see stick around for a while. So that includes the Hooks Institute and New Memphis. If the last few years have taught us anything, it is that change can happen in a moment, and we ask that you put your money where your heart is and support local organizations like New Memphis with your extra pennies. To stay up to date on all of the things that we have talked about and even more, follow us at the New Memphis on Instagram or head over to newmemphis.org for more information. So until next week, bye. This week's episode was made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com.